Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and it is Sunday, the 29th of January in the year 2023. And I hope you are having a wonderful weekend or start to your week wherever you may be around Australia or indeed anywhere in the world. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about Alice Springs and the Northern Territory and why Alice Springs has become such a lightning rod for discussions about Indigenous affairs and indeed the voice in Australia. We'll also have a look at what's going on in WA, particularly in the opposition, which of course in WA is the National Party as they have four lower house seats and their junior coalition partner, the Liberals, only have two. Both have had leadership changes and there is rumblings about what might come next. But first, let's talk about Alice Springs. And I want to start by saying that I myself have never been to Alice Springs. Much like most of the people talking about this issue and talking about Alice Springs itself, I have never been to the township of Alice Springs. I have never been to any of the town camps or remote communities around Alice Springs. So I've had to do quite a bit of reading on this, and I've had to get a bit behind the curtain when it comes to finding out real, true information. Because frankly, what's going on in Alice Springs now is not just something that has occurred over the last few weeks or even the last 12 months. Whether you remember it or not, in 2007, there was something called the Northern Territory Emergency Response. You might know it better as the intervention by the Howard government into the Northern Territory. That intervention resulted in banning the sale of alcohol in 32 town camps, 12 remote communities, and 215 homelands and outstations. It was continued under a piece of legislation called the Stronger Futures legislation, which had a 10-year sunset clause. Now, that sunset clause came into being on July 2022. That's July of last year. What does that mean? Well, that means that in July 2022, those 32 town camps, 12 remote communities, and 215 homelands and outstations were no longer subject to the restrictions on alcohol that had been imposed by the Stronger Future Laws. Now, this is a 10-year ban. Legislation runs for 10 years. During that time, of course, we had a change of government. 2013, Abbott, then we have Turnbull, then we have Morrison. Coalition is in power. Coalition is in power right up until... May of 2022. Now, if you go back through and you have a look at the history, it's all there. It's all available. In fact, the ABC published an article on the 7th of April 2022 talking about the fact that the alcohol bans were due to expire. And in fact, it had been 15 years because, of course, you have the intervention, then you have the Stronger Futures legislation. And that the Northern Territory government was trying to develop an opt-in program where communities could opt-in to not have alcohol in their community. This, of course, 
is the program that was put in place by the Gunner government in readiness for July 2022. Now, when you go back and you look at the discussions in that time, around that time, it's very, very clear that the Commonwealth government had not done its homework. In fact, the East Arnhem Regional Council CEO says said at the time that consultation should have happened sooner, that there was going to be a Pandora's box opened by just saying, hey, do you want to get rid of restrictions on alcohol in those communities? Now, what we've seen and what's been reported, and I say seen, we've seen through the media, is that there has been increases in alcohol consumption And in Alice Springs in particular, there has been increases in alcohol-related violence. Alcohol-related assaults rose from 903 to 1,396. We've seen increases of break-ins up 56%, home invasions up from 820 to over 1,000, and domestic violence assaults up from just over 1,100 to just over 1,700. These are unacceptable increases in crime, obviously. Now, Anthony Albanese has gone to Alice Springs, met with the chief minister, met with the mayor, met with local communities. And, of course, there are deep problematic issues beyond just the consumption of alcohol that drive these outcomes. There are issues around housing, issues around employment, issues around education and health services, and just quite simply a lack of economic opportunity for many of the people in the camps around the town. So, yes, alcohol, we know, can make these problems worse. Now, what has been promised? What is going to happen? Well, there are a few things. There are some law and order type things. There are more money for CCTV, lighting, safety measures in town, more additional emergency accommodation and night patrols. Also, some additional funding for domestic violence services and some extension of funding for safety and community services that was due to expire in June. But I want to make a really clear point here. The ban on alcohol was described by members of the community and by the Northern Territory government itself as racist, the blanket ban, and that there needed to be a different approach. The Morrison government had nearly nine years of the 10 years that that legislation was in place, putting aside the intervention, not that we can just necessarily put it aside, but putting it aside for the purposes of this maths. Nine of the 10 years the Morrison government was in power. Ken Wyatt was the Indigenous Affairs Minister. They put nothing in place, nothing in place for those communities when that 
piece of legislation expired. Now, it's all well and good to say just ban the alcohol. Well, let's be really clear. Let's be really clear what that does. There are members of the community, including land councils, Indigenous councils, who say that the ban laws criminalised Aboriginal people based on where they lived. And, you know, there's absolutely some, some strength to that argument to say that Aboriginal people who live in a camp outside Alice Springs can't buy alcohol is place-based discrimination. But, of course, alcohol does make underlying social issues worse. So what's the solution? Well, the solution does seem to be a combination of, of factors, a combination of policy solutions. One of those solutions is changing the availability of alcohol. So the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, went to Alice Springs and he announced that there would be no takeaway alcohol available on Mondays and Tuesdays. Bottle shops would have their hours restricted from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. on other days, and there would be a limit of one transaction per person per day. And that comes on top of some self-imposed restrictions that the major supermarkets had put in place just this week of limiting customers to two cartons of beer or six bottles of wine per person. Now, I don't really have a problem with that. I can actually see some advantages in a similar approach uh, around the country. Alcohol does kill more people than almost any other drug in this country, and we, we treat it with such such a cavalier attitude. You know, you see the amount of violence, property damage, personal injury that occurs as a result of alcohol. Now, what's going on in Alice Springs is exacerbated by alcohol, but is fundamentally a result of a lack of resources, a lack of infrastructure. You know, you've got community organizations in Alice Springs, and this is, I'm just reading about these things community organisations that are winding back, that are shutting down at the same time as those grog bans were coming off because they didn't have funding. You know, Scott Morrison knew this was coming. Ken Wyatt knew this was coming. The Gunner government knew this was coming. And the Gunner government did try and put in place an opt-in system where communities could opt in to not have alcohol in their community. Now, that hasn't been taken up by every community, and you can understand why. After 15 years of being told you're not allowed to, to then suddenly go, but you can opt in to continue to have this ban that you never wanted in the first place, you can imagine there's a lot of communities that went, well, thank you very much, but no, thank you. It's a very difficult problem to solve. 
because it's not just about alcohol. It's about jobs. It's about education. It's about healthcare. It's about how communities interact. It's about a sense of community. I saw one video from an Aboriginal elder standing in front of a wrecked car, talking about young people stealing cars, filming themselves on social media, crashing the cars, getting picked up by the police, being released, and then doing the same thing again. Now, some people go, well, that's a law and order issue. But the point that the elder was making is that it's not just a law and order issue, it's a community issue. It's about understanding what's acceptable. It's about understanding that your place in that community, in that society, is dependent on how you interact with other people, how you respect other people, how you engage with them and their property, and how they engage with you and yours. And frankly, a lot of that is missing. And I'm not I'm not laying the blame here. I'm not I'm not even necessarily blaming Scott Morrison, although you know I do like to do that for things. I think this is incredibly complex. And one of the points that Anthony Albanese has made is that the situation in Alice Springs highlights why a permanent advisory body that represents the majority will of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that is enshrined in the Constitution, that advises the parliament and executive government, is so important. That's the voice. Right? Now, I'm not saying the voice would have fixed this. I'm not saying that you know once we get the voice, all of these problems will be over. But the grog ban was 15 years old, and it ended in July. Now, the Morrison government found time to give mates cushy jobs and reappoint people onto long-term contracts because it knew that it might lose the election. You know, it was not oblivious to the notion that government might change, but it never bothered to bring about any legislation to transition the grog ban, to provide support and funding for community organisations, for the camps, for the homelands, nothing. Didn't do any of it. Now, you would think that if the voice was up and running, it might have been making a lot of noise about this. You know, I'm pretty politically engaged. I've got to say, I didn't hear a lot about it at the time. And that's partly on me, undoubtedly. Partly on the media, but also a system that basically treats the Northern Territory like the frontier. Something far away that maybe some people will visit on holiday but not many people live there, and the people that do live there are somehow very different to the rest of Australia. Well, I think what's happened in Alice Springs has highlighted that we have to look deeply at the reasons for these increases in crime. We have to better understand and have a more nuanced approach than just outright banning alcohol. You know, in 2019, some research was done that showed alcohol consumption per capita was the highest in the Northern Territory of all the states and territories in Australia. 
And when you consider that so many people, so much of the population was banned from purchasing alcohol at that point, that's quite an incredible statistic. And it talks to a broader problem. You know, prohibition didn't work in the United States. It just created black markets for illicit alcohol and caused other problems. Now, in some parts of the Northern Territory, there are some people, some organizations who say the grog ban worked. And that's great. And I hope that those communities opt in to continue to be alcohol free. You know, regular listeners to the week on Wednesday will know that Van doesn't drink. And in fact, I've really cut down the amount of alcohol I consume over the last 10 years, that's for sure. Because it is, it is a poison and it does exacerbate a whole range of other problems. But when conservatives try and make out that somehow or another what's happened in Alice Springs is an argument against the voice, I don't really follow that logic. I really don't follow that logic because there was 10 years, 10 years of a ban, 10 years to do something about those underlying issues, housing, education, jobs, health services. And in the year that the ban ended, governments were cutting funding and support. This doesn't make sense to me to say, oh, well, that's a good argument to not have a permanent ongoing line into government that advocates on these issues. If anything, I think it does the opposite. And I pose this question to people who say, how would the voice have solved the Alice Springs? I say, how does voting no on the voice solve Alice Springs? Because voting yes on the voice means that in the future, there is that permanent body to constantly advocate and constantly advise and ensure that when things like the grog ban are ending, when there are big changes, they don't fall off the plate, they don't fall off the agenda just because a government's fighting for its political life in an election campaign. But of course, that's not the only news that's happened this week. While it is probably the biggest news and in some ways symbolic of so much of the current national uh, debate, there's been some interesting news coming out of Western Australia. Western Australia, of course, is the one state of Australia that is almost a one-party state. The West Australian election two years ago was an absolute, absolute bloodbath for the Liberal Party. They were left with only two lower house MPs uh, and a, well, enough upper house MPs that you could fit in an Econovan. So between them, they managed the two lower house MPs to split the leadership. But of course, the nationals ended up with four. So the four nationals were, in fact, the opposition or are, in fact, the opposition. Now, this week, we've had some pretty big shifts over there in WA. The national party leader, Maya Davies, decided to step aside as party leader and opposition leader, and announced that she would not be contesting 
the next state election. Now, the next state election in WA is not until 2025. Of course, we've got the New South Wales state election in March. Interesting side note there, many of the seats that the Liberals either need to win or hold or at least be competitive in do not have a Liberal candidate yet in New South Wales. Goes to the core of the Liberal Party problem in this country. They are a party in total disarray. But the national leader, who had been critical of David Littleproud and particularly critical of Barnaby Joyce when he was leader of the Nationals at a federal level, has decided not to recontest in 2025. So Mia Davis is standing aside. There will be a party room ballot of the Nationals, lower and upper house, to see uh, who will take over the role. Uh, There are three people who are touted. I don't know any of them. You might. Shane Love, Peter Rundle, and Marome Beard. So one of those will probably become opposition leader. Now, that came as a bit of a surprise because Ms. Davis is quite quite young, relatively young, and had been doing a relatively decent job. The Liberals, on the other hand, the two Liberals, uh, Libby Metham and David Honey, of course, you know, between the two of them, one of them had to be leader, and David Honey was chosen immediately after the election in 2021. It's always been considered that Ms. Metham would take the top job when she wanted it, and that she had the support of the majority of her upper house colleagues who ultimately will be the ones who decide. You know, it's very strange to think that in a state as resource-rich and as important to the Australian economy as Western Australia, that (laughs) uh, six or seven people uh, think they're picking the person who will be the next premier. That seems very strange to me. I I cannot see. And look, politics is a strange thing. We've seen strange outcomes before. But for the Liberals to go from two to government is a massive jump in their support and, quite frankly, not one that any of the polls I've seen suggests they're getting. And maybe this is why uh, Libby Medham thinks now is the time. Two years to build a profile, two years to try and do something different. But of course, the other reality is it's the nationals who are actually (laughs) holding the keys to opposition. So they're the leader of the opposition, which is a more highly paid position. They are the ones responsible for handing out opposition portfolios. It's a little bit chaotic. It's a little bit chaotic. And look, I think it took a few people by surprise the level of chaos that the coalition in WA uh, finds itself in, so much so that Mark McGowan is actually uh, overseas at the moment. He, he thanked uh, Ms Davies for her service and you know did all the nice things, but it's struck as a bit of a surprise that this is what's going on. You know, it is a long way back for the Liberals, not just in WA, but as a brand, you'd have to say. 
And I can't see how changing from David Honey to Libby Madam is going to solve their problem in WA. You know, even in New South Wales, even with even with Don Perrottet trying to pretend that he's this mainstream centrist when he's really from the hard right of the Liberals, you know, wearing the Nazi uniform to his 21st, talking about why abortion is bad and why Donald Trump is good, all that stuff's there. You can, you can look it up. It's remarkable. You know, he's trying to pretend none of that happened. The, the disparaging comments he made about workers and it's all all very uh, interesting and now he's you know he's trying to be center of the road and win an election he still hasn't managed to pre-select more women he still hasn't dealt with the diversity issues in his party and quite frankly i don't think wa is going to do any better but look monday liberals will have their meeting and libby Medham will likely be the leader of the liberals in WA for the foreseeable future. By the time you listen to this podcast, it might have already happened. Who knows? Finally today, I want to just talk very briefly about an issue that most of us probably are not aware of, and that is stranded and abandoned ships. So why am I talking about that? Well, As regular listeners of this show will know, we always encourage people to join their union. And one of the reasons we do that is because there are many cases and many situations where bosses simply do not care about workers. And in Victoria, in the town of Portland, down on the southwest coast, there is a Liberian flagged ship called the Yangtze Fortune, owned by a Chinese company, that has been stuck for 20, since September 28, since September 28, months and months. 16, 16 Filipino crew members have been stuck on that ship. Now they've been able to come off from time to time. The International Transport Workers Union, the ITF, the MUA are working to try and help these workers. The company has essentially gone broke. There is very little hope that these workers will ever see their entitlements. In fact, it appears, according to Ian Bray uh, from the union movement, that these workers owed nearly a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, There's 36 sailors collectively owed that money. Uh, and that money that they have already been paid has probably been taken out of some of their leave entitlements and other funds that they would have been owed. So incredibly complex situation for those workers. It's why it's so important to be in the union, to be part of a collective. Now, half of the workers have been able to be repatriated back home Some workers have to stay on the ship because if there's a storm, if the ship needs to be moved, if there's an emergency, somebody has to be present to move it. So even though the owners of the ship have abandoned the ship, they've abandoned the workers, our current laws mean that they are under the authority of a federal court admiralty marshal. There's a role I bet you didn't know existed. And uh, eventually, 
what's likely to happen is that the ship is likely to be sold off by uh, act of the courts and creditors will lay claim. Workers are usually last in line, let's be honest. And without the collective support of their union, they're even less likely to get any of their money. So this is not an isolated incident. This is apparently on the rise. This has been happening around the world. Uh, There's reports that the sister ship of the Yangtze Fortune, the Yangtze Harmony, is in the same situation but in Singapore where the workers are not even allowed off the ship, effectively turning it into a prison hulk. And anyone who's familiar with the deportations that occurred out of Britain to the Americas and Australia uh, will know that a prison hulk is not a very nice place to be. But that's how they've been described, the situation of the Yangtze Harmony currently abandoned in Singapore. Not the only two ships. They're not the only two ships. There are workers around the world who've been abandoned on ships. And I just want to say this. There are lots of stories around bad bosses. We've talked about the Mantle Group before. You know, the Mantle Group, uh, this is a hospitality group, sacked a bunch of casual workers and then rehired them so they wouldn't have to pay them Australia Day penalty rates uh, after already being done for avoiding paying penalty rates. You know, we've talked about Justin Hems. We've talked about George Columbaris. You know, we've talked about lots of different bad employers. And it's why we always say, go join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's WOW. You can join your union right now. But we need to also remember that our solidarity has to extend to workers who are not from Australia, whether they're here working and there are many in agriculture, many in hospitality, many in other roles, whether they be healthcare, aged care, uh, early childhood, whatever it might be, whether it's a professional role, a skill-based role, but there are also workers like these ship crews who might only be here in Australia for a brief period under normal circumstances, but they're moving our goods, they're moving our livestock, they're helping us enrich our country through trade, and yet their treatment, the way they are treated, is appalling. And so I just wanted to give a very quick shout-out to uh, to the ITF, to Matt Purcell, uh, uh, to, uh, to Ian Bray, and to the workers who are currently and have been trapped on the Yangtze fortune and offer the solidarity of myself and Van Battam from the week on Wednesday in your struggle to be freed from your abandoned ship and to get the wages you are owed. Now, if you want to hear more uh, of the week on Wednesday, tune in on Wednesday. Van will be joining me on Wednesday. We are both in the same room with the same microphone. We will be together this Wednesday. But you can also, of course, book tickets for the Adelaide Fringe week on Wednesday live shows 
on the 22nd of February, less than a month away now, 22nd of February, uh, and then the 15th, the 8th, and I believe it's the 1st of March, the first three Wednesdays in March, at the Immigration Museum in the Yurt. Looking forward to being in the Yurt. Looking forward to seeing many, many smiling and hopefully laughing faces. We did do the Week on Wednesday live at Melbourne Fringe, the live show. We do try and make it a little bit funny. We do try and make it a little bit entertaining. We hope that you will enjoy it. Get your tickets online right now. And of course, just a very quick shout out to all the people who have, at the start of 2023, joined our supporter page, buymeacoffee.com slash work on Wednesday. We've had an influx of new buck a week, extended reach and cadre supporters and one-off support that is helping us grow and get the message to more and more people. So until Wednesday, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.